everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Infinite Worlds podcast. I'm your host, Winston Ward, publisher of Infinite Worlds magazine. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Nick the Tooth. All right, here we are back again at it for another multi-part series. This is uh, part two of our top 10 heroes of sci-fi. Pretty stoked. Yeah, this has been a pretty fun one. I think we'll probably end up doing more top 10s after this. You know, we were recording yesterday for the previous episode. We talked about some things going on in our lives, but here's something we didn't really talk about. What we're watching and reading and stuff. Like that's something we tend to do on every episode. Let's let's take a minute to do that. Let's see. What are we? I'll let you go first on this one. Okay, let's see. I'm rereading Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash, which I read, I don't know, maybe about 10 years ago. And I just bought a copy and just started reading it again, forgot how fun it is to read. And that's been a lot of fun. It's one of the books that I read that kind of like got me phased back into sci-fi as a focus in my life. And as far as what I'm watching, I think like almost everybody else in America, I've been watching The Last of Us. Dude, what do you think about it, man? What do you think? I've never played the video games, so I don't really have anything to compare it to. Mm -hmm. But to me, it's a fun show. I love the idea of the fungus as the triggering factor behind the zombie apocalypse. And it makes a lot of sense. Like, you know, I've known about the fungus that exists in the brains of insects and controls their minds for a long time. I learned about that from like David Attenborough when I was 17 or 18. And to me, it's a really good basis for a zombie story. The acting is good. I wish there was a little bit more zombie stuff. I assume when you're playing the game, you're like constantly fighting zombies, or at least I think, you know, likely a lot of the time. And so far, the first season's already over. And the whole first season, there's a little bit of zombie stuff, but not like a whole lot. It's like Build is a zombie show and there's not all that much zombie stuff, but I uh, liked it nonetheless. I liked it quite a bit. I'm really looking forward to the next season. We've talked about Pedro Pascal many times and, you know, I'm like everybody else. Pedro Pascal could be daddy. (laughs) (laughs) He's amazing, man. He's amazing. No, I I played the video game and it was uh, the first one all the way through. And it was just one of the best video games I've ever played. It's so freaking rad one thing i will say is that when i'm watching the series i watch like the first two episodes you know not being really very familiar with the plot and everything and then i was like wait a second this plot is almost identical to the plot of the movie the girl with all the gifts Mm. which i don't know if you've seen that one Mm -hmm. it's almost identical and i was like dude did this game rip off the girl with all the gifts but then i actually looked it up and the game came out like two years before that came out yeah so the plot of this game precedes the girl with all the gifts so i guess That was sort of like the book ripping the game off. I hate to use the word rip off. Obviously, we talked about a million times about how things take inspiration from other sources and everything and how, you know, ripping something off isn't exactly how the things work in the creative world. Good artists borrow, great artists steal or whatever. You know, I know I was about to say that that kind of leads into what I'm reading. I uh, I'm reading the uh, a book by Rick Rubin, the producer. Um, oh yeah. And yeah. And he just came out with a book and it's called the, I really recommend it for you. I recommend it for everybody. It's called the creative act, a way of being. And it's, it's all about, you know, I mean, think about it. This guy is like one of the greatest music producers to ever live from, you know, Rundy to Beastie Boys to Slayer, you know, to Johnny Cash. Yeah. Johnny Cash to the Red Hot Chili Peppers, bar none, the greatest, right? And so right. he wrote this book about creativity and doesn't mention a single artist in it. And so he wow. really, you get less, no sensationalism at all, all about the creative act and how, you know, it's an intuitive thing. And we all, almost have to nurture the way, it, that's why he calls it a way of being. It's like we have to nurture that thing inside of us that allows for creativity to flourish. And so it's beautiful. It's very Zen and he's very much into meditation. But I will say this, what's cool is he says time and time again in the world of art, you will see something spring up in multiple places at a time. So like, mm-hmm. like, like you were saying with The Last of Us versus uh, the girl with the, what is it? The girl with the gifts? Is that what it is? It's called The Girl with All the Gifts. And it's also about a fungus that turns people into zombies and a girl has like, is like immune and carries the cure. Yeah. And, and that was a novel, I think. And then became a movie. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I believe that's right. And I think, but I'm pretty sure the video game precedes both things. Mm-hmm. What he talks about is that in, in art, in any art movement, 
there tends to be the same idea. It's almost like the, the, you know, there's this culture that is ready for an idea and it just comes up. I mean, he really is mystical in his approach to life. His, his approach to art is just an approach to life. He's like, life is mystical. He's like, I've worked with enough artists to see that no one has control of anything. What is inspiration? It's something that's channeled through you. He brings up like- Absolutely. He, he brings up like punk rock. He's like punk rock, you know, all of a sudden emerged in many different places. There was no internet. There was, these bands weren't signed, but yet they started with this movement. You know what I mean? And what, what happened? Yeah, like London and LA that's and DC are right. all- thousands of miles apart, you know, CBGB's in New York. And so, yeah, they're all, yeah. yeah, And it just came up exactly. He uses exactly that example. So, you know, probably you can imagine that the zombie thing is such a cool idea because it's really about how we will relate to each other. Human beings will relate to each other when things end. What happens if we have less structure and we're just faced with this anarchism that that some people are like, I want that. I want that. I mean, I at some point we feel oppressed. So there's this almost this fantastical idea of, wow, it would be cool not to have rules. But then we're like, oh man, but what would happen if we didn't have rules? You're talking about this inspiration and trying not to steal idea or not necessarily like, you know, the ideas sort of exist. It's so funny because I'm in the middle of writing another book mm-hmm. and I'm like halfway through it now. I'm like really blazing through this one. It's like the fastest I've ever written anything. And I'm using this term in air quotes, but it's like a vampire book. But I'm trying to completely turn the idea of how people think of vampires completely on its head. I'm setting my own, totally in my own rules, getting rid of all of the typical cliches you find around vampires like garlic and crosses and silver and mirrors and all that stuff. In fact, I'm not even going to have the word vampire in my book. Mm -hmm. But it's really weird because I'm trying to create something original in an existing mode. Mm -hmm. But it's so weird because I I didn't invent vampires. And I'm still obviously standing on the shoulders of all of these other creatives that came before me. No matter what I write, no matter what I'm doing, no matter what project I'm working on. Yeah. Even Infinite World, it got inspiration from so many sources. You have no idea how often somebody messaged me and is like, I mean, I love Infinite Worlds. It reminds me of so much of like reading old heavy metal. I completely understand. You don't think I was reading old heavy metal? (laughs) Yeah, it's really cool. So anyways, I I recommend you pick up the book. It's all about cultivating that childlike wonder and, you know, picking up back where we talked last time about doing psychedelics. I mean, I think psychedelics does that. It breaks us down back into that way of just the whole world is wondrous and all. And fungi, one more thing I I will say, I also watched the documentary on fungi on Netflix, and it's just amazing. And the mycelium network, it's so sci-fi. It's cool because you realize that, you know, fungi are a species, they're not a plant. And so it's cool to like learn all that. Let's go ahead and jump into our episode. We'll get back to our uh, top 10 list, huh? Let's do it. Let's do it. I think you are up, my friend. This is probably the most obscure character I put on my list. At least one of the most obscure. My number seven is Jin Lee I, who is the protagonist of the book The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin. Okay, so first of all, this is one of my favorite books. I absolutely love this book. It gives me big feels. It's just a sweeping adventure story. It's just a great idea. I like all of Ursula K. Le Guin's books. This one is my favorite. And I'm really glad to be able to talk about it on the thing because we haven't really done that yet. Maybe we should do a Le Guin episode or maybe we should do a Left Hand of Darkness episode. I don't know. We'll put it on here one of these days. Okay, so let me tell you the plot of this book. The Left Hand of Darkness takes place in the Hainish cycle. And the idea behind the Hainish cycle is that human diaspora exists in the universe like humans live on a bunch of different planets and have been they've been settled on these planets for a long time like for eons but they didn't originate on earth they originated on a planet called hain and hain is the old home of human beings and they ended up on earth and humans on earth are originally from hain as well but there used to be intergalactic travel and then intergalactic travel was interrupted for a really, 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 really long time. And then when it was restored, all of these different human societies are rediscovering one another again. And they're forming a sort of a loose confederation that's called the Ecumen. And the Ecumen is like all of these different human societies that have sort of 
evolved independently on different planets, reforming a new confederation. Okay, so that's really the setup. And the story involves this character, Jin Lee I is his name, and he is the envoy of the Ecumen, this confederation of planets, and he's being sent to Gethin, which is another planet occupied by human beings that's unaware of the existence of aliens at all. They've got their own society on Gethin, and they don't know that there are any other planets with people on them or anything. He arrives there as the envoy, and the way that the ecumen works is they send a single envoy to the planet to explain the ecumen and explain what it's going on and to try to convince these planets and their population to join the ecumen. And the reason they send a single envoy is so that they don't feel like they're being invaded or that there's a threat, that there's just one person showing up. It's a way more diplomatic way of doing it. And that's how they feel. And this character, Ginley is, or Ginley, I, again, I've only read it written down. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's, it's either Ginley or Ginley. Uh-huh. I is sent there all on his lonesome. And he gets there and he starts telling the leaders of these nations of this place of Gethin about the ecumen and how they should join him. Okay, so here's the deal with Gethin. This is a human society that has evolved over all of these eons to be ambisexual. And what that means is, is that they have no set biological sex. For 28 days out of a month, they're sexless completely. They're like neuter. But for a couple of days every month, they develop a biological sex. And sex that they develop depends largely on the conditions that they're in at the time. So over the course of an individual's life, they are both male and female over and over again throughout the course of their life. So every person on Gethin understands what it's like to be both male and female. And it is a completely normal part of their society. But when Jinli arrives there, he does not understand this at all. It is completely different than all other societies in the Ecumen, and no other human society has developed this way. And so when he arrives there, He's bigoted, I guess is how you'd say it. He meets the people there and he distrusts them. And the first person he meets as an ally is the prime minister of the nation of Carhide. And his name is Estrovan. And he doesn't trust Estrovan because he thinks estrogen is too feminine. Mm. And he thinks he's deceitful. But over the course of this novel, and like I said, it is a sweeping adventure story. Even though it's a science fiction book, the novel itself reads like an adventure story, like, a, like an mm-hmm. adventure drama. And over the course of the story, he ends up in this lengthy life or death situation with Estrovan, who's fired for being the prime minister and is exiled from Carhide. And they both end up in the same area of exile, and they end up joining forces to survive. Earlier, when you were talking about how uh, going up into the ice and cold and everything seems like being on a different planet, the whole time you were saying that, I was thinking of this book because there's this really lengthy part of this book where they have to travel through the ice and snow together and just barely hanging on to survival. And through this whole process, Ginley learns to understand and tolerate and just appreciate how this society operates where his biases and misconceptions about gender and sexuality are just that. They're just biases, you know, and he learns to sort of come to terms with this new way of looking at things. And it really is one of the most beautifully written and beautiful books of all time. And the way that Jin Lee goes from being this stubborn, stuck-in-his-ways guy to having this open mind about things because of the people he meets and the experiences he has is such a parallel to the society of our world where bigots don't like gay people until they meet gay people and talk to them and realize they're just people, you know, and that their preferences and the way they live their life doesn't make them not people. It doesn't make them evil. It doesn't make them anything else except just a person with different preferences than yourself. If you're the kind of person who has biases, and we all have biases, we're all human beings, biases are completely normal part of being a human being. And I, like everyone else, have my own biases. But this is a really great book about confronting your biases and learning to grow and develop mentally and spiritually and philosophically 
despite the biases and the misconceptions and preconceptions you carry with you. No, I, I think I think that's why sci-fi is so cool because I was thinking about this the other day where, you know, the reality is sci-fi is philosophy and it's in a, in a, it's an approach. Right. It, it kind of pulls us out of our uh, the way we look at the world in a fun way, but it's really always the best sci-fi from Star, Star Wars to Absolutely. Star Trek is all about philosophy. And, you know, it's never more evident than the writing of Ursula K. Le Guin. Yeah. Um, and I'll stand by that forever. Yeah. But that, to me, she was the one who really raised science fiction into the stratosphere of philosophical thought. But this is the book that I think is, at least it touches on this. We mentioned the libertarianism earlier. There's also the book The Dispossessed, which also takes place in the Hainish universe. And that tests the ideas of libertarianism and communism and capitalism all against one another. Mm-hmm. That's a really good book for that as well. But I picked Jin Lee from The Left Hand of Darkness because the character himself is just so relatable, extremely relatable to any human being because we all carry those biases. No, I love it. I love it. She's, she's great. La, the the Lab of Heaven is one of my favorite books, man. I love that one. Very, very cool. Very cool. All right. So for my next one, dude, my next one is probably going to shock you. Okay. Uh-oh. But I found this movie to be so freaking fun. It was such a cool, fun movie. And like I said, going with the theme of fun, so my next one is The Edge of Tomorrow, and the, oh, yeah. the hero is William Cage, which was played by okay. Tom Cruise, of all people. I mean... You know what? It is a way underrated science fiction movie. Oh, it's so freaking rad. It's so cool. And, and I, you know, in a way, like Emily Blunt, she, I think she just makes the movie. But I also think that for Tom Cruise, I'm not a huge Tom Cruise fan, but this, I felt, was like one of his most enjoyable characters because – so the, the the gist of the movie is there's an alien invasion and Tom Cruise is, again, just this kind of like a Johnny Rico character where he's just all nationalist right. and he's a war hero and the invasion's going on and he's like, he's like, yeah, I'm here to help drum up support. And the admiral or the whoever, I don't remember what is the general is like, well, they're in a meeting and he's like, well, yeah, you're going to drum up support. You're getting sent to the front lines. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not that kind of a, of a, of a soldier. He goes, well, you are now. And so basically, right. Basically he gets sent to the front lines and tries to protest tries to go AWOL. And he's like, you want to play hero? You're playing hero. And, um, and it's so cool. And Emily Blunt is like the real hero of, right. Of the movie, but in a way she's the mentor. And so she's this ultra fucking badass character who is, uh, you know, the aliens are about to destroy all of humanity. And what happens is Tom Cruise's character ends up getting dying during the like D-Day, during the big wave of attacks. But because something happens, he gets caught in a time loop where all of a sudden, he, as he dies, he wakes up. Something happens and you learn what happens and, and how they use it to their advantage. But he wakes up, you know, right, like, I don't know, what, how, what was it, a day earlier? Yeah, like the earlier in the same day, I think. Yeah. I haven't seen this movie in a while. I didn't know it was going to be on your list or I would have like rewatched it i actually almost rewatched it the other day just because i was looking for something to watch so yeah so he's now trapped in this loop and he wakes up and he's like just experienced the most horrific death ever right where he's basically like melted alive right and now he's like oh shit what do i do what do i do and now he goes back into the meeting with the general and he has to go back through these steps again and he's caught in this time loop and he's got to figure out it's like a mystery what is happening And he keeps seeing Emily Blunt's character and he ends up connecting with her. And and meanwhile, he's going through the war again, the invasion again. He's getting killed again. It's gnarly. But he connects with her and she becomes like his mentor. She at one point was caught in the time loop, but now it's him. And she has to he has to convince her to help him get through this freaking insane thing. And and what I, again, back to the, the level up, 
the it was such a cool level up scene where you know because he's caught in this time loop he acquires every time new skills new skills she she ends up training him right and then you know he overcomes like his his character flaws which were you know he's he started this movie where he was a nationalist you know ego. yeah ego and he was a coward he really wasn't he was faking it he really wasn't yeah. willing to sacrifice for anybody but him you know all he cared about was himself and it was really about confronting those character flaws and once he did that and once he confronted it in himself and he became the real hero he was supposed to be then obviously we get to the finale and it was fucking cool. But the, um, but that character arc for him, I thought that's why I like Tom Cruise in this, in this movie, because when the movie first opens, you're just like, yeah, I buy it. You are complete. He played that character so freaking well. So I really enjoyed it, man. It was a good, good movie. Um, big budget, obviously. I think the budget was like 180 million and the box office was like 380. So it was a big movie. Right. And for me, it was one of Tom Cruise's best. I agree. I thought it was really, I actually didn't want to see it because I, it looked like just on the cover. It was, it came out during a time when there was like sort of a flood of Tom Cruise sci-fi movies coming out and like oblivion was one. Yeah. And Will Smith was doing sort of the same thing. Yeah. And there was sort of like a, like market was sort of saturated with those movies and you know, you're not going to go watch all of them. So you just kind of assume that they're all kind of mediocre. But when I eventually did watch this one and I was like, oh, that was way better than I thought it was going to be. Another interesting tidbit about that movie is that it has two titles. I know. It was called Edge of Tomorrow and it was called Live, Die. And both of those were official titles for that movie, which is really odd. I, th I think what happened, I think they realized that like Edge of Tomorrow just didn't count. I think it was a movie where they didn't capture the, they didn't feel like they captured the type, like what the movie was about. Like Star Wars is about Star Wars. Right. Like you couldn't be any more on the nose right. with that movie, you know? And so it was one of those, I think it was one of those kind of blundering where shit, we didn't nail it. Let's try and re let's try when we release it on DVD or, you know, video on demand, let's rename it. So we actually capture it, which is what was the title? Live, die, repeat or something. Live, die, repeat. Yeah. And that's actually what the movie was about, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. But both, both of them, I, I like Edge of Tomorrow better. I thought the. Live, yeah, me die, too. That's repeat. a way better title. And yeah. Live, die, repeat is like the, the corniest title I've ever written. Ever. But, you know. <laughs> but you know what was cool? What's really cool about it is that also. It very much, I think, more than any movie I've ever seen, it captured what it really is like to play a video game. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And that's one of the reasons I liked it, too, is that it definitely had that, like, that experience. But I'm not a huge video game guy, but I, had, I did play video games growing up, you know what I mean? So I definitely mm -hmm. I had that experience. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is familiar, you know? Yes, exactly. So very cool, man. I recommend that movie. I thought... Tom Cruise was great. Emily Blunt, I love her, man. And she was so freaking badass in this movie, you know? So my number six. All right. My number six. This is my other, one of my other most like predictable choices, I think, or at least one that's a very popular character and like popular among science fiction fans. And that is Lilu from The Fifth Element. Oh, how did I not think of this one? That's like my favorite movie. And she is. Oh my God, she could be number one. Yeah, I thought that too. You know, she, like like I said, these aren't exactly in order or whatever. And also, if for this movie, you could have also put Corbin Dallas on the list. That's one of the things I really like most about this movie is that both of these characters are super heroic badasses. One's a bit of an anti-hero, but the reason I ended up picking Lilu over Corbin is because Corbin has a bit of a anti-hero thing going on, at least at the beginning of the movie. And he definitely has a character arc and becomes more purely heroic as the movie goes on. But Lilu is literally a made hero. She is like a hero in the ultimate sense of the word. So that's why she ended up making my list. So 1997's The Fifth Element. The plot is that these elements are hidden here on Earth. They're like a weapon that is going to stop the ultimate evil. And they're taken off of Earth and they're going to be returned when the great evil returns at the time when the great evil approaches. That takes place in like the early 20th century when the aliens come and take the elements away, then it jumps to the distant future 
And in the distant future, now the great evil has reappeared and suddenly the five elements are needed again to ward off the great evil. And there's this race against time. So the movie, basically these aliens are returning and they've got the fifth element with them to stave off evil and their ship is destroyed. And humans having advanced technology rebuild the survivors based on just a couple of cells that survived. And when they do... What they end up getting is this woman, and her name is Lilu. Her actual full name is like almost unpronounceable. And she's played by Mila Jovovich, who was a model at the time who then became a pretty big, like, A list actor, I'd say. I mean, most of her movies aren't A list movies, but, you know, she was a pretty sought after actor, especially in the 2000s. She, like, held down the Evil franchise, which was, I didn't really care for the Resident Evil franchise, but the was a huge there were big successes yeah another sci-fi series you know big sci-fi series yeah, yeah totally yeah totally so lilu is one of the supreme beings of the universe and what that means is that she's super smart super strong super fast and capable and endlessly brave and she ends up falling under the care she kind of loses all of her memory and everything it doesn't quite understand what's going on at first it just kind of slowly comes back to her and she learns all about humanity again through watching uh, documentary tapes and everything and uh, she ends up teaming up with this down and out taxi driver named corbin dallas who's played by bruce willis if you, i mean everybody's seen this movie so i'm trying not to like over explain it <laughs> and we've talked about this before this movie's based loosely on one of the segments from heavy metal the movie from the 80s and also on a mobius comic as well, which that section of the heavy metal movie was based on. All of that said, the reason I picked Lilu is because she is designed to be a hero. That's all she is. She just represents goodness. She's a supreme being of the universe. And what I like most about this is that as a supreme being of the universe, unlike other interpretations of what a supreme being would look like, she is pure good. She's extremely good. And there's this really great scene when she's learning the, all the different languages and all the different history of the world by watching all of these videos and reading all of these internet articles like superhumanly fast. And then she comes on the section of war and it just breaks her heart. And she becomes suddenly overcome with despair, having learned about the existence of war. And just how humans can treat each other just so... Yeah, just, and just how people treat each other. And she starts to doubt the point of saving life if life treats each other that way. You know, she's like, what's the difference between the ultimate evil that's coming to destroy everything, the great evil, and what's already going on? Yeah. It's a really extremely touching moment in the movie. The movie's honestly way better and way more effective than it really deserves to be. And, I, and it's not meant as a slight at all because it's literally a nine and a half out of 10 movie. It's like one of the best movies ever made. But Considering the director's other projects, considering what it's based on, its source material, it's just so much better than you'd expect it to be. It has so much more emotional weight, and there are parts of it that are like the part I'm describing. It's just really, it's truly a gripping scene. And uh, eventually, the big culmination of the movie, and I'm going to give this away. We were talking about not doing spoilers, but we're going to give this away anyway because, <laughs> because everybody's seen this movie. And if you have it, I'm sorry. Cover your ears for this last spoiler here. But in the end, you discover that she is the fifth element because she represents love. And the five elements of the universe are earth, fire, wind, water, and love. Uh, you know, very much like Captain Planet style. And that love is what truly conquers evil. When I describe it to you, it sounds sort of corny and cliche, but when you're watching the movie, it's not. It really is just like a super effective, super touching, profound scene. And because of that, Lilu has to make my list. Has to. Yeah, it's so good, man. It's so good. It's one of my favorites. I can't believe you beat me to that. I didn't even think about, I don't know how. Oh, she's so, <laughs> she's one of the most iconic sci-fi characters ever. She's rad. So cool. So cool. All right. So here we come to my sixth. This is, uh, without question, one of my favorite Star Wars movies. Of all time, oh, yeah. I'm going with okay. Rogue One, um, okay. Rogue One, and Jin Urso. 
And that's a, what a great choice. Right? I was like, you know what, of all, because, you know, obviously like you, I'm like, yeah, Luke Skywalker, you want to choose Luke Skywalker, great character. But Jin Erso was so, I don't know. I don't know if I'm choosing Rogue One because I love the movie so much. I don't know if I love the movie so much because it was finally a really, really dark installment in a series that had gotten so corny. Right. You know? Right. And, um, the, but it's just Rogue One for me is just one of the, the best of the series. Rogue One and Empire Strikes Back for me are it, you know? I completely agree. So, yeah. So Rogue One, we pick up like at the end of the, you know, the, the prequels and the Empire, the, the, the Jedi have all been all but extinguished. And in Star Wars, you know, there, the MacGuffin is the plans for the Death Star. Mm-hmm. And so when we start with the New Hope, you know, it's all about Princess Leia putting the scene is the 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 battle cruiser like captures the ship takes it in and she is putting the plans basically inside the R2D2 unit and ejecting C3PO and R2D2 down onto uh Tatooine and that's where the whole thing begins and um and what's great about Rogue One is they were like okay we're going to make a movie based on those plans how did they actually get the plans and it is so perfect and and her what's great again back to character arcs you know is that her father and mother were uh were her mother was murdered by the empire and we see that at the beginning of this movie and her father was captured and she escaped mm-hmm. and the story is really about her life and about the tra- that childhood trauma that she carries and the resentment and the all just everything that she has and she finally has to you know what happened to my father was my father a monster did my father went and worked for the because what happens is her father spoiler her father becomes a, he was a great great engineer and he's the one that developed the death star right. you know and she has to like luke had to confront darth vader she has to confront and make peace with her father. And that's what happens in this movie. And the finale is even better because it's so perfectly like scene for scene for scene in the finale here. She actually encounters um, those plans, or uh, not her, but those plans actually come to Darth Vader and they're like they're transported to Princess Leia, and it's just the way it wraps up and goes into A New Hope is just effing genius. One of the things I like about your pick for this character is is that this character's entire arc is in the one film. Yes, you know my list of in the first episode, my list of honor, honorable mentions included a bunch of Star Wars characters. And I didn't include this character, even though it's a great choice. There's a lot of other great Star Wars characters, too. But I didn't include this character. And really, in retrospect, I totally should have. Right? (laughs) I think we might have talked about it before. But if you really dig into the development of this movie, this movie was a complete disaster. And they had to bring bring in Tony Gilroy, who is just one of the greatest writer-directors, to come in and rescue it. And, you know, there was a lot of controversy because he was, I don't think he was credited um, the way he thought he should have been credited, but he was paid $5 million to come in and fix the movie. And he is not a Star Wars fan. So he came into it with completely objective eyes and was like, this is the problem with the movie. you got to do this, this, and this. And, you know, he's never, I've listened to several interviews with him and he hasn't, he won't go into too much detail, but, um, you know, I think right. his lack of reverence for the franchise enabled him to say, these are what the problems are, you know. And since then, he's gone on and developed the uh, the the latest series. What was the what's the name of it? Andor. Andor, Andor. right? Yeah, Andor. So Tony, Tony Gilroy since then has become somewhat of a Star Wars aficionado because he did the series Andor, yeah. which to me was amazing. I think Andor is much it's much better than I thought it was going to be. So, yeah, I really dug that. Very cool. Very 
very different than I expected. I'm, I'm looking forward to um, season the next season, which uh, they're filming right now. So that should be released. Yeah, I don't think it's going to come out until like late 2024. Yeah, it's going to be a long time. So, but anyways, really cool. Rogue One, definitely, you know, right there with Empire Strikes Back. And and you know what I loved about it is that everyone dies. <laughs> and, and I thought I thought that I thought Star Wars needed that. You know, I was like, I want an adult Star Wars. It may be the only adult, real adult Star Wars that we ever get, you know, but very good. Even The Empire Strikes Back, which was the dark film, was, I mean, compared to this, was not anywhere near as dark. It, had, you know, had all of its quippy one-liners and stuff, you know, so. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. All right, my number five, okay, is, this is sort of a cheater answer or whatever, because it's actually two characters. So this is a bit of a cheat answer. But my pick for number five are Special Agents Fox Mulder and Dana Scully from the X-Files. Oh, so good. Because you can't pick one without the other. You can't just say, oh, Mm -mm. Mulder or Scully. They're a tag team. You got to pick them both. Okay, so I got lots of reasons for picking them. First of all, the X-Files came out when I was like nine years old or something like that. And I was immediately a gigantic fan of this TV show. And I still, every time when my wife and I are trying to pick something cool to watch, we're forever like, you know what? Just put on an episode of the X-Files because we know we'll enjoy it. There are almost no episodes of the X-Files, especially, you know, the original series, not the rebooted stuff in the very late seasons. It's like feel-good television, even though some of them are like real messed up and dark and scary and stuff. That intro song, it'll never stop being spine-tingling to me. No, I was just about to say I'm, I'm flabbergasted right now because I can't believe I didn't even think about it. I didn't, I didn't think about the fifth element <laughs> and th- that you picked, and I didn't think about freaking X-Files, man. And X-Files to me is like, for me, X-Files is the greatest series ever, man. I love everything about it. It was one of the first, like, serial like that I can remember, sure. right? Besides a soap opera, it was really, for, you know, one of the first serial. I mean, it was so groundbreaking in that respect. So you had these ongoing plot elements and those were always my favorite. Oh yeah. Some people love the st- standalones, but the, the serial ones where you had that ongoing UFO conspiracy oh, in the cigarette uh, smoking man. We did an episode on the series. So again, this is one of those ones that if you are just jumping into the podcast with this episode, or with, you know, some of the more recent episodes. This is one you can go back and listen to our episode on this one. And I had a ton of fun with that episode. I have, yeah, I have a ton of fun with all of our episodes, but that one was like, a spe- you know, had a special place in my heart. I think I said during that episode, and I'll repeat it now. When I was in high school, I dated a girl with red hair. And we came mm-hmm. to school, to high school at Halloween, dressed as Mulder and Scully two years in a row. And uh, like, I was like that obsessed with the X-Files back in the day. And also, you know, it was in the 90s, so it was like topical then too. But okay, so real quick, just break down of the characters. Fox Mulder is a, he's sort of a rogue FBI agent. He kind of does his own thing. And he independently investigates the X, he comes across X-Files when he's doing his regular thing as a, a FBI investigator. And he starts kind of independently investigating them. And the X-Files are cases that involve unexplained phenomenon of different kinds. And basically what happens is that the higher ups, decide he's not fired or anything for doing this stuff even though he he violates fbi protocol like all the time and at first it's not clear why that happens but as the series goes on you understand why he stays on the on the fbi but what they do is they partner him with dana scully who's a medical doctor and a forensics expert and the idea is that scully is going to temper Mulder's conspiracy theories with scientific reasoning and pulling back from the edge but as the series goes on Scully witnesses all sorts of unexplained stuff. And, you know, a lot of times Mulder's wild conspiracies turn out to be true. And, you know, that's the case with Monsters of the Week or with, like you said, the thread of conspiracy theory and aliens and such that weaves through the entire series. What's great about them is that they're such good FBI agents. They're both so honest, so brave, so hell-bent on finding out the truth both of them in their own way. Like Scully's hell-bent on finding out the truth through her lens of scientific skepticism. And Mulder's hell-bent on finding the truth through his own lens of wanting to believe, you know, the catchphrase for the show. The combination of those two mindsets, I really think, are what should make up a human being's mindset. You know, we should nurture both sides of our mind equally. 
believing in conspiracy theories is fine. We talked about this before when we did the episode about how conspiracy theories have just gone off the rails these days, you know, like flat earthers are a thing again, and <laughs> 5G is turning us all into space muppets or whatever the hell they're saying. Conspiracy theories have run away with themselves because people have forgotten how to temper their ideas and their conspiracies with scientific reasoning, being able to shoot down their own theories based on new information and facts they uncover. You got to have both things equally in hand if you really want to like think critically. And these two characters, you know, along with like Carl Sagan and a number of other influences are part of the reason, a big part of the reason that I think the way I do, that I have the worldview that I have. So of course they had to end up on my list. I love it. I love it. And you know what I, you know what I think that about X-Files that really, as you're talking about them, that really hits me is think about, you know, not only was this groundbreaking because it was a serialized like TV series and that was so new. But also think about how freaking damaged and traumatized they both were, right? right? I mean, they both had such deep, deep character flaws, you know, that they dealt with throughout the entire series. I mean, the first thing we learned about Mulder was his sister being uh, abducted and, it, you know, and how he absolutely was so traumatized by that. You're right. Scully with her cancer. You know, not trying to ruin the show for anybody who hasn't seen it, but there's a plot line with cancer involving Scully. And it's, yeah, they're, you're absolutely right. They're like very human characters in this very horror sci-fi world. It grounds them. It makes the show extraordinarily watchable. Also, one more thing is, is her, sure. you know, as you, if you think about it, she had this, uh, you know, she was a materialist. She was a scientist. But she had this... um she had the, this like crisis of Catholic faith, right? So she also had faith right. and it was just, she was, they were such complex characters. And that's why Absolutely. I think the show is so watchable, you know, and relatable. All right. So we're going to my number five and my number five is I wanted to, I don't, you know, I love graphic novels, but I'm not like, uh, it's pretty rare that I find one that I love. And so I, I think, you know, aside from, of course, Akira and um, like Ghost in the Shell, one of my favorite, like, you know, recent uh, graphic novels was Paper Girls by Brian K. Vaughn. And oh, oh I, yeah, this to me, I, the characters, all of it was just the perfect story. And it was so fun to read. It was so fun you know something we haven't really talked about that as I put together my list? What's that? Is that how fun and for some reason how great it is to have female heroes, right, in the hero's journey. Oh, sure. And I love that. And it's kind of a, of, of a device that if you think about it from movies from Alien to, you know, uh, Terminator to... Even this, Paper Girls, it's really cool. Stephen King does it a lot. Yeah. And so you have like these very vulnerable against all odds characters. But I love the, the strength of the female hero. And so this is one that is equally great because these are teenage girls. And it's these group of teenage girls who are like all of a sudden they're visited. They're on a paper route and they kind of meet each other. And so it's kind of an ensemble group thing, but they meet each other on their paper routes and suddenly the earth is attacked by these alien mech creatures and they're hiding and they get like sucked into a time vortex and they find themselves trapped in this like inter, I want to say dimensional, but it's really a time war, a temporal war. Right. right? And so, uh, so anyways, the Brian K. Vaughn is... Why he did uh, Why the Last Man, um, I think was right. his first project. We've talked about him before. That's another one with a lot of really strong female characters. Like almost every character in the story is female except for the main character. And he did Saga, and Saga was the same way, right? It's like yeah. really, really, yeah. really mm-hmm. strong female characters. Dude, what's cool about Jiu-Jitsu is that what I love about it is that in Jiu-Jitsu, some of the best fighters are females. It is like this one sport where females are fucking incredible. And so for my latest thing, I talked about the Inner Blade, this project that I'm working on based on samurai mindset. What's cool is that in researching samurai history, some of the most feared warriors 
were freaking female Onomashi, I think they Musha warriors. And so it's not just something in fiction. Right. You know, you give them a blade or whatever, they're fucking badass. So anyways, that's why I went with uh, with Paper Girls and they recently did a series on Amazon, which I thought was okay. It was cool. I'm probably going to go back and watch it again. I watched some of it. I haven't watched all of it, but I watched it. And it was it. cool. It wasn't the same. Didn't feel as, as cool as the... Uh, That's definitely how I felt about why the Last Man series as well. Yeah, I did. Dude, I didn't, even, I didn't even see it. I didn't even see it. How was it? It had its moments. It had its moments. It just it wasn't... I mean, they canceled it after one season, so you know. Yeah. Hard to pull off a lot of these in series. I mean, some of these have to be... Sure. You're talking sure. about these are big budget, and to, to pull it off, it's not always the easiest. Whereas, you know, we're like The Last of Us is a much smaller when you're playing the video game. It's very small and claustrophobic. It's a little easier to pull that off. So anyways, so yeah, that's my number five. I agree. I mean, you know, I've read most of the comic, not all of it. And, you know, I had a ton of fun reading it. Brian K. Vaughn has a very unique style. Even though you pretty much classify most of his work as science fiction, it still has a fantasy, dreamy atmosphericness to it. And I feel like he pulls it off with this one as well. I just wanted to comment. You were talking about women warriors. That's also going to lead into my next answer for one. Let's go ahead and give you a heads up there. That's going to lead to my next answer. But I'm also watching this show right now. My wife and I are watching this Korean show called Physical 100. Have you heard of the show? No. Uh-uh. What is it? The concept of the show is they gather 100 of the most physically fit people in Korea and they pit them against each other in these physical fitness challenges. They're everything from like wrestlers to bodybuilders to like, you know, mountain rescuers to soldiers. But it's male and female and the women compete against the men. Oh, wow. You know, yeah. And it's a pretty fun damn show. So I, I recommend that. The idea is what they're trying to do is find the ultimate example of physical fitness through all these tests, whether it be male or female. Oh, that's so intense. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really intense. The first challenge they have is just hanging from a hanging bar, and everybody hangs at the same time. No way. Yeah, and then the next one is they all choose an opponent. If they're a male, they can pick another male. If they're a female, they can pick another female, or vice versa. And they have to like basically play keep away with a ball, you know, in an arena. Like there's a ball in there, and whoever's holding it at the end wins. <laughs> and you can pick your opponent up and throw them around and like wrench it off of them. You can hip toss them or whatever else. And that's as far as we've gotten in the show. Now we don't know what the rest of the challenges are going to be like, but it's a super addictive show. But it kind of goes to your point about the female warrior, you know, for sure, because they're like they're highly showcased in this show. Oh, that's rad. That's sick. Okay. It also leads me into my next pick, my number four pick, mm -hmm. which is Lauren Oye Olamina, who is the protagonist of Octavia E. Butler's The Parable of the Sower and The Parable of the Talents. Mm. Uh, two-part series by Octavia Butler. I don't know if you've read these. They tend to sort of fly a little bit under the radar in the sci-fi world, mm -hmm. but they are two of the coolest post-apocalyptic dystopia books ever written. They are just so gripping and filled with like graphic violence and all sorts of... I, I don't want to sell graphic violence as a selling point. I'm not trying to make that a selling point. I just think it's important that I think when people think about dystopian stuff written by women, I think they think the preconception that it might be softer or easier to stomach comes into mind sometimes. In my experience, not the case. No. <laughs> it's quite the opposite, actually. Okay, so I'll tell you a quick bit about the setup for these books for those of you who aren't familiar. This is set in the not-too-distant future in America. It's set in America, even though these events really affect the entire world. But climate change, corporate greed, and wealth disparity have pushed capitalist society past the breaking point. Everywhere you look, it's nothing but widespread poverty and violence and drug use. And Lauren, the main character of the story, is a black woman, black girl. She's actually half black and half Hispanic. And she's born in Southern California. And around the time she's born, her parents are still doing okay. Society hasn't fully collapsed. As she grows up, the dystopia builds around her. Society crumbles around her. And she lives in Southern California, and it was once a pretty prosperous neighborhood, and now it's just hovels. And the idea of having a job slowly and slowly disappears and all that stuff. And also, another thing you need to know about Lauren is that her mother abused a pharmaceutical drug while she was pregnant. And because of that, 
Lauren was born with a condition that they describe in the book as hyper-empathy. And what hyper-empathy does is when she sees an injury on another person or sees another person in physical pain, she physically experiences that pain for herself. Oh, wow. It's like a debilitating problem for her. So her whole life is spent physically feeling whatever pain other people feel, like feeling like she's dying over and over and over again because the world is so filled and riddled with violence. It sounds like Deanna Troy, like a Deanna Troy episode of uh, Star Trek Next Generation. <laughs> yeah, it's like that. She's an empath in the same way that Deanna Troy is an empath. Mm-hmm. Even though I, if, I think the first book, Parable of the Sower, came out before... I don't know, it probably came out around the same time Next Gen came out. But the idea of an empath existed before either of these things. So growing up, seeing the imminent collapse of society, she decides to prepare herself. And what she does is she reads books on survivalism and foraging and prairie living and like canning of fruit. She learns how to make acorn bread and this kind of thing. While she's doing that, she suddenly starts dreaming up this idea for a religion. And the religion, she calls it Earthseed. And the basic premise of Earthseed is that God is not a being or like an entity, but God is defined as change and that change will overpower everything. And that no matter what, you can't escape the grip of change. God is entropy. Yeah. Entropy is used a lot in the book and exactly that. Mm. And uh, she writes down the rules of this religion. And basically the other part of the religion is that human beings are destined to leave earth and create diaspora across the earth, you know, settle. Yeah. But Lauren is such a badass dude. It's written almost entirely from her perspective. The second book is written from a few different perspectives, including her daughter's perspective in the future. But the first book is almost entirely from Lauren's perspective. And the things that she goes through are beyond harrowing. Like it is a nightmare, but Lauren is just so awesome the whole time just goes from being a little girl to being just like one of the most badass characters in all of literature. And the fact that they haven't tried to create a adaptation of this at this point blows my mind because it's so much like our own reality. Here's how much like our own reality this is. This book was written in the 90s. And during this breakdown of society, a president rises to power who leans on the religious right to get his votes and scapegoats everyone else, like literally foreigners, non-Christians, and uses them as scapegoats. And I shit you not, this president's campaign slogan is, make America great again. (laughs) Shut the fuck up. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. (laughs) This is in the book. Oh my God. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. I'm dead serious. Oh my God. This is a really important piece of literature, but it's way too close to home. I know. It's, uh, the simulation is just, it's way too intense. You got to be kidding me. Oh my gosh. Just to be clear, so everybody knows, that was actually a campaign slogan used by a Republican. I, I think it was Reagan. I think it was like one of his buttons during his first campaign. Just so you know, Donald Trump didn't invent that slogan. It was used before. But he, he sure as hell popularized it, right? <laughs> <laughs> while scapegoating immigrants and non-religious people and literally anybody else he could think of mm. in order to rise to power. So it's a really cool couple of books. They're really fun to read and really like page turners too. And Lauren Olamina is just one of the all-time great characters. And I'll stand by that forever. So that's my number four. <sighs> Dude, that's intense. That's so intense. The simulation, it's funny because it's make, it reminds me, I just saw an article that came out in which scientists are, are showing that it's looking like the, in, at the quantum level, the, the future is influencing the past. And that is part of the reason for entanglement and superposition and all this madness, you know, uh, uh, at the quantum level. And so it's kind of making me go, oh right. my gosh, he wrote this when? And then, yeah. You know, we talked about this yesterday that sci fi is so, what's so beautiful about it? It really is a vehicle for, to explore not only philosophy, but to really hammer home fucking history. Like we've got to, as a species, learn from history, right? Because, you know, just like, just like Hitler did it, 
you know, and we're demonized, right? right? It's like the oldest thing. It's the oldest stick in the book. Let me demonize a minority and rally everyone around me and gain power. It's, ah, man, it's so mad. But cool, man, I haven't read that. So I'm definitely going to... I'm definitely going to read that. If you read the first one, you'll definitely want to read the second one. They're real fun to read. So. Okay. All right. So now we're going to my next, my next, my next, my next, which is a novel series. It's a trilogy. I've talked about it a bunch, um, but I'm going to hit it again because it's that good. And it is by Margaret Atwood, Oryx and Crake. And the hero, oh, yeah, man. the hero of that book is Snowman. And he's he's right. such a like bumbling kind of idiot, and <laughs> and I love that. I love the character. I love heroes who are just so unexpected like that, you know. And so we wake up with with Snowman, and he's living in the future, and it's total dystopian, right? And he's he's up in a tree because. You know, the, earth, the world is like so like muggy and hot, at least where he is. He's by the water, but mm-hmm. there's mosquitoes and bugs everywhere. But he has to stay above the trees because they have these genetically engineered uh, pigs called pigoons, which are just brutal right. and they attack him and will kill you. And But they're smart because they've been engineered like with, with human brains. And uh, they escaped from a lab and he lived like in this little colony in which they were doing all of this engineering and they escaped and caused like the end of the world. And it goes, it's, this is in the future. And oh, also in the future, there are these other genetically engineered uh, human beings who are like really, I don't, they're very childlike and they walk around naked and they're. They're just, they think he's like, they're, he's crazy. He has hair. They have like no hair. So anyways, it goes back and forth from this dystopian future to back to when he was a teenager and his best friend was kind of a genius and was, was right. disgusted with humanity and kind of unleashed this, this apocalypse and it's cool because it goes back and forth, back and forth. And it's three books in the series. And I heard that they were, um, I read, I think, somewhere that this has been in development for a while. I think it was at HBO that they were trying to make this. The thing about Margaret Atwood, what's funny, is she will never claim sci-fi. So for her, it's yeah. like, none of this is sci-fi. You know, Handmaid's Tale is not sci-fi. It's speculative fiction because it could happen. But, you know, the reality is she's very sci-fi. I mean, she's, you know, even in Handmaid's Tale, there was this, like, this issue where women could no longer give birth. And, I mean, it's such a a sci-fi type, like, trope. And this book, this book, forget it. Genetic engineering, all these things. Yeah, there are no lasers and there's no aliens, but... It's very, very sci-fi. It's very cool. Genetic engineering is like, I mean, that is an absolute science. I mean, even though we're doing that now in reality, it doesn't mean that the future of that current technology still counts as science fiction. Yes. You know what I mean? Totally. We did an episode on Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. Mm -hmm. And we talked about this book briefly during that episode. And we talked about how she doesn't like to be called science fiction and how she doesn't call either of these books science fiction and how I disagree. Like you said, I disagree with that. Like, I mean, she's obviously the author and she can definitely think whatever she wants. It's her work. You know, everybody else thinks of it as speculative fiction or science fiction, you know? And so, sorry, Margaret Atwood. Obviously, I still think you're a genius and everything, but I'm gonna have to disagree with you on that point. Snowman's a really cool character for a lot of reasons because like you said, he's so weird. But what I like about him most is that you say bumbling and simple, but I think it's because reality has shifted in such a way where, you know, it's so far into the dystopia, his mind isn't troubled with any of the things that trouble our mind at all. His concerns are very primitive and primal because that's what's left. You're right. I never thought of that. He's not grounded. He's so unhinged by the fact that he's lost everything, every touchstone, every person, every routine. Yeah, that's a good point, Winston. Yeah. 
honestly, that book reminds me of another book in a way that I read, or like I read Oryx and Crate first, actually. But there's another book that in a way sort of reminds me of that one. And it's called A Canical for Leibowitz. And that, that's another mm. that's another post-apocalyptic book. And it was written in the 50s. And it's also got this weird dreamlike sort of confusing future for everyone, you know, where there are all these remnants of the past and everything. I can't say this for sure, but I think it was also an inspiration for like Mad Max and those stories as well. So this is an interesting pick. You know, I mean, I don't necessarily think of Snowman as being heroic, exactly. <laughs> although he does some sort of heroic things. Like he protects the children in, the, exactly. in that book. And he's not, he's like not unheroic. He's definitely a good guy or whatever, but he's definitely not the way you'd think of a hero in the typical sense. Definitely not the way you think of like a comic book hero, you know? That's why I picked him, because I was like, ah, such a great protagonist, right? Because is he a hero? Is he not a hero? You know? Picking things like that is going to definitely make it so we don't have any repeats on the list, you know? <laughs> for sure, for sure. Guys, if you're enjoying the Infinite Worlds podcast, you could definitely check out more Infinite Worlds related stuff by visiting our website, infiniteworldsmagazine.com. There you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds magazine. It's a full-color, ad-free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at IWSciFiMag. Also, you can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker, and our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo. Thank you.